Well, on my show, I get to interview some incredible people, and I'm happy to say that some of them are my actual friends. I met Tendiswa in like 96, we think, uh, backpacking across South Africa and Namibia. I was in between Skankanansi tours, and even though we are separated by some pretty big oceans, we always managed to connect and keep up with each other over the years. Um, tonight, I have on my show a South African legend. She's arguably the most important and the most successful contemporary female singer in South Africa right now. Her name is Tandiswa Mazwai. Hey, bitch, how the fuck are you? How the fuck are you, bitch? How the fuck are you? How the fuck are you? Um, I'm very good. How are it's, you? Um, I'm, it's so nice to see your happy face. You look absolutely incredible. I have a fashion question because you um, always look amazing. You have this yes. gorgeous headpiece and everything that you're wearing always means something as well. I know that. And in the background, you have this huge room. It looks like a huge room. Where is you have a recording studio in South Africa now? Is that new? In yeah, Johannesburg, I have right? A, I have a, a recording studio in Johannesburg. We, I opened it uh, earlier this year. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, there's, re there's a recording space and there's a rehearsal space and some meeting rooms. Uh, so I kind of share it with other artists so that they can have uh, professional-looking meetings. So yeah, <laughs> that's what we it do. Looks, it looks beautiful, I have to say, because I remember I, I've, stayed, I've stayed at your house and you had the you just were starting that small room off to the right-hand side that was around. The yeah. yeah, yeah. That's cool. now just become a little crazy storage room. So it's gone, it's gone back to it was a storage room before, and now it's come back. <laughs> it's to gone a back room. to that. <laughs> it's yeah, gone back. Okay. For all my jewelry, well, I have I'm a lot of jewelry, so it's all in there. I've packed okay, it. Okay, good. There. Well, I hope you can keep it locked, love, because I know you got some special pieces. Well, we can talk about that later. Um, but in terms of going back, see what I did there. Um, you grew up in Soweto, and one of the things, well, you were born in, in Eastern Cape, but you grew up in Soweto, yeah. and one of the, the things that irritates me is the impression that Soweto has outside of South Africa. I mean, people think, you know, you barely have running water and, and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. It's like you talk to people, they think it's like an old school township from like 1960 or something like that. It, but Soweto it was, is like a, it's, I mean, it started off like that though, right? But Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a small, it started off as a small little township that was like a, a settlement that was taken over by, uh, by some people and then they invited other other settlers to come and settle on this piece of land. And mm. after a while, there were so many people settled on that land that the government had to kind of make it official. And uh, after several, after a few years, the government started moving people into those areas, away from other areas into new areas. Um, and then Soweto just became the big uh, township for black people because at yeah. the time, South Africa was separated in terms of race. So certain neighborhoods were for Indian people, other neighborhoods were for mixed race people. Um, and I obviously grew up in a black neighborhood and then, you know, there were white neighborhoods. So that's what Soweto was. And I guess in some way, uh, during the apartheid kind of years, Soweto would sometimes have no water, have no electricity, but that was a political act. It wasn't yeah. because South Africa was not able to provide that kind of service to black people, but that the apartheid government enjoyed not giving black people certain services. You know what I'm mm. saying? So, yeah, but Soweto is very cosmopolitan, very lively, and all of South Africa's greats 
have either lived or passed through Soweto. So um, it's, you know, it's a very important part of the South African history and also like the cultural landscape, definitely. I mean, um, I loved I loved being there. I mean, you took me there, actually, to see where yeah. you were from and stuff like that. And I, I just loved, I, there was just such a, you know, it's kind, it was kind of like Brixton in the early days when I was growing up, you know, the early Brixton. This is year. what I was going to say. Yeah. That it's it kind of like Brixton. It felt, I felt very at home there. <laughs> yeah, just a lot of black people doing black stuff with the speakers outside, you know, <laughs> sitting, sitting outside the of the house with a chair yeah. on the streets. You know, watching people go by, have a comment yeah. on everything that everybody is wearing all the time. Yeah, exactly. so I mean, I loved it then, and it, and 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 what was really um, interesting about that is that that same. I think when you're kind of poor and you're black, wherever you are in the world, you have to make something out of nothing. And so I love the fact that you had all these engineers, these little geniuses that could fix a motorbike that you think that nothing is going to happen. In England, they would throw the motorbike away, but that doesn't happen there. You know, it's like everything is used, everything is reworked, and they will make that motorbike work because there's no money to buy another one, you know? And And that's how I grew up, you know? I think there's, there's, there's always a genius in the ghettos, in the townships that's ignored. And actually the, the tragedy of living in a township or in a ghetto is that you see this genius after some time kind of uh, sink inside a bottle of booze because there's so yeah. much frustration from not being able to use your talents, to use your mind, because the system itself blocks you from being able to do that. So. Soweto is filled, all the townships in South Africa are filled with geniuses who are frustrated and, and hurt that they're not able to, to be who they're supposed to be in the world, you know. And a lot I'm of them are musical the geniuses, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many yeah, amazing so much music. musicians that are just, you know, sitting at home drinking because, because of the depression that comes from, you know, not knowing what comes next. Mm. So um, yeah, but I I I loved growing up in Soweto. I loved the I loved the ingenuity. You know, like we we played with bricks and pretended that that brick was a bus. You know, so <laughs> we also knew the power of 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 sound. That if I take this brick and I go, it becomes a bus because yes. I made that sound. You know, yeah. or if I go, it's an ambulance <laughs> or, or a cop car. So um, I just love the ingenuity we, that we had to d- deal with, that we had to, um, the stuff that we had to come up in order to um, to enjoy our lives in the township, you know? Yeah, and, and to create things. And, and, the, and I think that for me growing up, you know, musically, you know, I remember I was always nagging everybody to get me a guitar. And one day, you know, my aunt turned up with a guitar that only had four strings on it and couldn't tune. But so I just kind of would play around with one string and sing yeah. along with one string and made and, yeah. and made the other string kind of work. So I had a two string guitar and I would just so play sounds. That. You could do so much with that. do so much with that, right? Bass <laughs> exactly. The one string bass line. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think I felt that same sense in South Africa where, you know, musical instruments were just were just everywhere and sounded great. And they had their own particular sound. Is that where your voice came from and your, you know, your sense of musicianship came from? You know, when how early did you start singing and who were those early influences? I think that, well, like everyone, I was singing in church. Uh, you know, because church is such a, a an important part of 
black life everywhere you know it's the place where we mm. are able to go and cry and weep and deal with the pain and the tragedy of being black uh so i started singing in church um even though my mother would you know she didn't really believe in anything they were teaching in church she only left us in church mm. so that she can have a few hours on sunday morning by herself <laughs> mine is the same my mom believed so, it though not in those days but now she does but yeah no my mother taught a completely different teaching at home but uh understood yes. that you know it was also an important um community experience to go to church so i sang in church but i also sang in school choirs so i sang in my primary school choir and i sang in my high school choir um and so there were all these songs that were like building up inside of me you know um when i was a lot younger the township choir was very much kind of like um a lot of movement a lot of excitement in the choir mm. and then and then i got older and i was sent into a private school because now south africa was transitioning into this new south africa where black kids could go into white schools so when i fight when i went into a white school i got a different kind of teaching in the choir the choir was stiff the choir couldn't move at all and the voice had a very different control to how we were using our voices in the township which was kind of like to throw it out of your body um, and also your whole body is part of your voice so yes. what you're doing with your arms and your breathing and your moving the whole body is your voice the right? whole body is part and of it and you so, restricted down to just using your head then we were just kind of restricted to singing songs like um i wrote the song down there was a song that i used to sing called jerusalem do you know that song you should and was that no da, 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 oh, this that one. one. Oh, there was no And was I love that song, you have to be honest. I love that song. I love that song. On England's something something. Green and mountains thing. Something like yeah. I went to church school, so yeah. Jesus. Well, you know, we were we were colonized by the English, so we we got a lot of English teaching. And when I did go to a white school, I went to an extremely privileged white kind of very English school, and those were the songs that we were singing. But I didn't stay there very long. I I moved on to a new school where I it was much more cosmo mixed. I think much more mixed in terms of race. You know, at my old school, I was the only black child, and then at this school. There was only one white kid, which kind of made sense to the kind of demographics in South Africa anyway. And in that choir, I learned stuff like John Lennon, Imagine, you know. Yeah. So it was also like in all these phases, uh, the choir was indoctrinating something in me, you know. Um, and that's kind of where I started building my voice. Also because uh, my father used to go overseas a lot to school. So he went to Cambridge uh, the one year. And an uncle of mine moved into the house with a massive sound system. We never had a sound system. Nice. My my parents were both writers, so the sound you could you would hear in the house was typewriters. You just heard typewriter, typewriter. Uh, and but my uncle brought a massive sound system, and he would play records all day. And I think mm. that's when I started like really getting this kind of fascination with um, what my voice could and. Could do you know 
uh, my mother and I used to have like competitions singing Pavarotti and so you know in some ways you got a lot from lots of different things because you know it's not that it was it's wrong to sing in that style it's just a different style of singing when you don't move yeah. your body but you know but if you combine that when you're just con- concentrating on just the voice when you have to stay yeah. still to combine that with thinking about the voice and hearing the voice in your head and the body with when you've got to sing and move around and jump around and and then you have to work out where the breath control is going to be because obviously yeah. then you have to work on breath control and keep yeah. and keep the flow so mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of goodness in all of that i think that that was a very good part of my training the all the different uh, styles that i was getting um exposed to and actually um in the late 80s my mother introduced me to salif keita so ah. i also was kind of starting to get into this like african type of vocalization because um because of this kind of like uh, there was a lot you know the american imperialism the cultural imperialism in south africa that america had embarked on meant that we watched a lot of american tv and consumed a lot of american culture so everybody wanted to sound like whitney houston for instance who is a great vocalist um but i think that there was something interesting that shifted in me when i heard the african singers and i started being you know exposed to african vocal treatment and that because that there's like the language changes the tone and how you actually pronounce the notes you know pronunciation yeah. the language you know the um as the, how do i say Cosa. Cosa. yeah did i say it right yeah. Cosa. you taught me right Cosa. you're close there, you're close there's, yeah i'm close but there's a, <laughs> there's a click language right so you know yes. imagine singing in that that's a completely different way to sing right? it's a very different way to sing you know you 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 need to harden your voice in a way that, uh, you know, sometimes you're told not to, you know. Mm. Uh, for instance, if you're singing one of Mira Makeba's famous Posa songs, which has a lot of clicks in it, it requires you to go really hard when you're using, when you're doing that. You have to say, You know, uh, there's nothing wow. soft yeah. about it. Um, mm. But there's, you know, there's, there's a way in which it, it can be quite beautiful. And did you feel that people were losing that because they're trying to do the, you know, Rokari and the Whitney Houston, you know, all the trilling, you know, all yeah. that stuff that people are so fascinated with, like now, now pop songs, yeah. it's all about trilling. In the time that I was coming up, uh, for instance, when I was a kid, Mira Makeba's music was banned. So you couldn't hear it anywhere except if like somebody was like some kind of clandestine thing where you would find Mira Makeba's music playing under some bed or behind some door. Um, and so a lot of people were kind of falling into this very pop um, image and sound. Um, and it was kind of going away from the traditional uh, sense, this kind of traditional um, uh, traditional sounds that we had in South Africa that Mira Makeba and Huma Sigela and... Uh, let's say um, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, for instance, mm. had gotten very famous for. But at the time when I was coming into the industry, I had to make, like, you know, I had to make a very conscious uh, decision to to speak mostly to that, to this mm. old sound, to this old traditional sound, and try and bring it into the contemporary. In 
those days, it, it, you know, when apartheid was still happening, what were the pop charts like then? Were black people allowed to kind of be in the pop charts or allowed to sing or they could only sing certain songs? Was it strictly regulated? How was, how was, the, how was musically, how was black expression in those days? It could only be acceptable in a white well, Yeah, I mean, I think that there was there was a time, perhaps maybe in the 40s, where, you know, black artists would be called in only as session musicians and get paid a session fee and never as writers or composers. Um, And then, you know, uh, somewhere in the late 40s, they started affording black black artists. um, uh, What do you call them? Royalties uh, for for their work. So... um, you know, it's been a kind of a long struggle to get to where we are today, where record labels can, you know, differentiate from the producer, the composer, you know, the arranger, all of these different things. Um, but yeah, I think for a long time, a lot of uh, black musicians were having their work written for, written uh, for them by someone else and by a white mm. artist who would then make money from the royalties. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, as soon as um, Guaito and the, the the kind of genre just before Guaito came in, people kind of started their own record labels. And those Guaito record labels became so big, they became bigger than the Sonys and the Universals, uh, to mm. a point where all these major record labels were now trying to, you know, kind of um, partner with these smaller labels because they knew the sound that was coming from the ghetto, the sound that would make sense in a new South Africa. And to, to explain to the people listening, Kwaito is a, a sound, is a genre of music, a sound of music that started kind of uh, in the mid-90s in South Africa. It came out of the ghettos. I think it was, start, am I right in saying it was started by somebody played a dance record at the wrong speed and everybody went crazy? And yeah, the DJs, a- the DJs kind of felt that the house music at the time was way too fast, so mm. they slowed it down. And um, then a kind of new culture of spitting rhymes over that mm. uh, kind of started coming up. This was like in the early 90s, 1990, um, And then, you know, the kids just kind of, other kids started dancing to the music. So a whole subculture kind of built up. And this is a time yeah. when, you know, young people were going into the clubs for the first time because now all the laws that prevented us from coming into, into the city at night were gone Mm. so you know people were in in the in the in the clubs for the first time and so Mm. this music was coming out of that celebration um and uh, so once they realized that this was kind of big in the underground all those young kids kind of started studios and started recording this music and selling it from like the boots of their cars and now all the kids are like yeah it was very much like hip hop now it's the same yeah very much yeah. like yeah and it, so because it, i remember i remember when i was in south africa i remember you took us to a club right in the center of joburg uh-huh. and and that was the first time i heard quite a music and it was it was really interesting to me because i'd never heard anything like it it was like a brand new sound i mean now it's like a, a, a you'd say amparo you know there's a lot more music genres have happened since then so yes. then you've got this music coming out of out of the ghettos kids are making it and your band bongo muffin which you are the lead singer of and the lead writer um are the are the band that become huge because of that because you are you know the bongo, bongo muffin is your band becomes the 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 
the most famous uh, Queto band at the time, right? Yeah, we do. We <laughs> we were like kids. We were <laughs> 19, 20. And um, I, think, I think what kind of differentiated us was that um, we, this particular Queto band, merged and blended a lot of sounds from Sophia Town, from the Sophia Town era, which was in the 50s, which was mm. quite a golden era for South African music because mm. that's when Miriam Makeba became, first became a star. And that's when Miriam Makeba left South Africa in the late 1950s. So, you know, we were blending some of that with the new, with the new sound that was coming from the city. And also that our music was a little bit more political. We had a, a lot more of a political, we were politically overt, I think, mm. in the ways that maybe the other kids were not. And um, I think that's what kind of propelled us. And I don't know, I mean, it kind of took us all over the world. And that was that. Was that. Yeah, I, I remember. And, and I remember we met three friends of friends and you didn't know I was a singer and I didn't know you were a singer. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I, I didn't actually discover for quite a while, actually. Um, you know, the, the how Which is cool, I were. think. Which is kind of cool, right? Because it's I kind like of like that. we're in separate worlds, but we just hit it off and, and got on really well. And then I remember going to the club and I was like, hold on, this sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been very... Um shy about about fame or about being yeah. known and yeah I, which i actually have a question about that because you whenever i've given you a compliment you always shrug it off you hate it when i say anything nice about you or nice about your voice um and look at you grinning there and, and so i'm not gonna you know hurt you anymore give you any more pain but the thing that struck <laughs> me, me about the thing that struck me about when I first heard your voice was like, I literally, it shook my soul. I was like, wow. And it, because it was, you, you had so much more control than I, than, than I had. You had, it was as a richness you and a warmth. You cannot say there. that. Because when I'm, I first, I'm telling you. Is let me tell you, because when truth. I first heard your voice, it kicked me in the chest. Oh, Because like, oh, <laughs> <this> I, <laughs> I thought I, that. Well, it's probably because of the, the, the screams, but you had this um, this strength and, you know, hearing about the, how long you were singing and all the different types you were singing, you know, that there's this, like, solidity in the voice that I've always been very um, uh, jealous of when I see in other singers. And that's what the first thing that struck me about your voice. I remember looking at you and be like, what? <laughs> is that what you, is that how you sing? Um, Quietly and, and, in the back. Quite Quite in the, the background, back. I was just like, oh my God, um, public listening to this, you've got to go and check her out on Spotify. I mean, what an incredible voice. Um, and so, and, and, and those were the, your influences. We talked a little bit about it already, but your influences when you're growing up were Hugh Masaka, Salif Keita, you know, Black Lady Member, you know, uh, Miriam McCabe. You like yeah. the older style of, of singing and, and the older style of voice. And is it because politically also you wanted to keep that because for me, your jewelry, your clothes, your yeah. jokes, <laughs> everything about you, you know, comes from this, um, this, this, this upbringing of of having to do with white South Africans and apartheid, right? Yeah, and you know what I think? I think that um, I had the kind of I had this privilege that when I was like in my late teens and early twenties, I met you know, these legendary musicians. I met Brahu and met Mira Makeba 
and that they became friends of mine. They became close uh, mentors of mine. Um, and I think that that really has been my uh, little magic secret, you know, uh, thing in the in the back pocket is that I had the audience of these people and that they I, I could sit at their feet and and listen to to their advice and learn what they what they know you know so i think after i just became kind of tainted with that because i was hanging out with with really really old people <laughs> <laughs> and um and also i think i think the, the the other main thing is that you know my mother passed away when i was a teenager i was 16 years old when my mother passed away and she was a very like strong pan africanist thinker very radical um you know and so i've always uh, presented myself in this i've always wanted to present myself in a way that my mother would be proud of mm, and so she was only 34 I, I, so she was in her prime as well yeah she was really young and so mm. i adorn myself in in african things and jewelry like this is a this is a zulu headpiece uh it's usually a men's headpiece but I kind of liked it, so I picked it up. Yeah, your king tie, um, so, you know. Yes, yeah, so I can do that. Uh, <laughs> the earrings are Maasai. The, these rings are um, Tuareg that I got in Mali. And these are Indian that I got in, um, in Rajasthan. But I've always just kind of wanted to present this pride. Also because, you know, growing up during apartheid, you lose a sense a, a sense of yourself and you lose your pride in yourself and you want to erase yourself as as this regime has tried to erase you you know you you want to dress differently you want to you know you want to straighten your hair you want to lighten your skin you want to talk a certain way you want to live a certain life you know and you know, this is all just an attempt for me to say I am proud of who I am. I am proud of my history. And I know that my history is not only one of oppression, but that there's one of empire. It's a history of pride. It's a, you know, there's a there's a great history that I can be proud of, you know. Mm. Um, I think that sometimes people that think that because you live on the continent, you don't suffer um you don't suffer so much the effects of colonialism. But I think, you know, um, the continent suffers kind of, suffers quite a lot of the effects of that. And we have to deal with kind of decolonizing our minds and mm. coming back to the understanding that we are not just slaves or we're not just, uh, they are not our masters, you know, mm. that, you know, this is, we have, that this is our birthright to be here breathing alive in this form you mm -hmm. know? and 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 i think the thing about it is that, that it comes out in everything you do but with a twist because yes what i love about you and fashion is that you know everything you're wearing has an importance has a story has a deep long history and heritage and it's on your body for a reason but at the same time it's totally contemporary like, you know, the, the, the cuts of your clothes, the way that you're wearing, you know, you're not trying to replicate and hang on to the past in that way. You're, you're actually, for me, one of the artists that have completely redefined fashion for the modern generation and as a modern era. So it's kind yeah. of like you're taking the stuff from the past, 
but you're not cutting it in a traditional way, right? No, no, no. I'm I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just doing me. I'm just doing me, and me is, um, a lot. It's a lot, you know. I and so I can't pin it to just one thing, you know. There's a a part of me that's extremely hip hop. That's extremely punk. That's extremely um, traditional, that's contemporary, that's, you know, that's just um, how I live in my world. And so I'm always, even with my music, I think you can't really say that this is traditional music from South Africa, but there's something about it that sounds South African, that sounds African, you know, and uh, every album is different. Every album mm. is an exploration of a new thing that I've discovered. I love it. When people ask me why is my music political, I also ask this because I'm from Brixton. You know, yeah. do you do you feel that too? It's like, how can you be a human being with a fucking soul and not have something to say within your music? I'm not saying that every song you do is political, but I think as someone who's written a lot of political songs and had that in my heritage, it's like, well, I'm from Brixton. What do you expect me to say? You know, when yeah. our our kind of place, South London, was because we voted Labour, you know, we were completely forgotten about by the Thatcher 80s government. Um, and, you know, the inner city, uh, you know, the funding and all that stuff that goes into inner cities, again, has been attacked by this new prime minister, you know, who's admitted that he wants to take all that money out and give it to the countryside people. You know, mm. um, and I think that, you know, that's something that you never lose, right? You're always still a yeah. child yeah. for apartheid at certain points. That, that's something that never dies. Yeah. And also, you know, I think that my life is political. There's nothing that I do that isn't political. It's who I love is political. Where What I wear is political. Where I go, what I sing, you know, uh, my body is political. How I move this body is political. The size of this body is political. <laughs> everything, everything about everything's me is political. political. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Political. Political. Yeah, everything is political. So I can't, I can't uh, disconnect from that. You know, even my joy is political. You know, it's a to be a black person and to be happy is a radical act against the machine. Because, mm. you know, the machine is, the, the presupposition is that you will be, the machine will finish you. And if you manage to dance and sing, then you've, you've beat the system in many ways. So, yeah, um, it's not that the intention is to write political music. It's that whatever comes out of my mouth ends up being political, you know? Mm. Yeah. Because, yeah, because I think, you know, we all know how, some of the, I, I mean, the, 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 it's, I don't even know where to describe it, what apartheid means. You know, it's just such a evil, dark thing that's going to take generations to be able to fix. To un, yeah, to undo and to understand, I think, because mm. there were so many lies told within the apartheid system that all of the stuff is, is, is being peeled and, and, and revealed over and over to us as as we see things differently as we you know for instance right now south africa is 30 years into its democracy and we're reali we're realizing i mean i guess we've always known this but that you know there's a cycle 
that happens with African governance, which is that the power lies somewhere else. And whoever you vote into power is not really in power to empower you as the masses. You mm. know, that England still controls a lot of South Africa, that the land that we walk on still belongs to, you know, this is Anglo platinum, this is Anglo gold, this is Anglo America, this is this and that. So there are powers outside of our land that still control the lives of everyday South Africans, the economics of the lives of everyday South Africans and the power that the everyday South African has, you know. So um, as, as evil as apartheid was, there is an evil that continues in South Africa, that continues to, to oppress the working class, the poor, who are actually the masses in this country. So it, it, it becomes even much more sinister as you realize that there remains a small minority that still got their fingers couldn't give yeah that couldn't give a damn taking a goal and taking all of the the stuff out and that couldn't give that couldn't give a damn about what happens to Mm, the everyday south african yeah Mm. yeah i kind of agree it's the same for the uk (laughs) but that's another story um i we've known each other since you know mid 90s end of the 90s um, you know, from your days of Bongo Muffin, how, how do you feel when you look back on that period in your life? Like if I look back on my period of, of the early kind of Kankanansi days, there's so much realizations I have, you know, I, I think, oh, that was a mistake. Oh, that was brilliant. That's one of the reasons why we became successful. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, other stuff happened. How do you look, how do you look back on, on some of those early years? You know, I, 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 I think that mostly it's just about what um, kind of, it, there was a kind of euphoria about those early years because we were coming up at a time when South Africa felt like a utopia, when everybody was so hopeful and the dream felt like it was about to be visualized. So this was really kind of like a really exciting time for me um, and also it was a time of like such great possibilities. So many things, the world opened up for me as a young person then, you know. So I, I don't have too many regrets. I have so many exciting memories, you know what I mean? Like the other day somebody pulled up a video of me with Michael Jackson and then I was like, oh, okay, you know what? <laughs> a, lot, a, lot has, a lot has happened in lot this has little happened. life. In this little life. So, um yeah, I look at it as, you know, it was it was a time of great discovery um and also uh a great sense of um we were just so aware of who we were in this time and the importance of what we of what we were saying and what we were doing and what we what we were doing all over the world, you know. So um I look at it with great pride. I'm really proud of those years, you know, and I'm I'm happy that that was my youth. That I always say to people, my youth was not wasted on me. It was not wasted on me. <laughs> yeah. I'm still on it. I'm still on it. We haven't grown up yet. I can testify Mm-mm. to that. Mm-mm. And one of the things I think, yes, 
you know, I think there's an elder statesmanship that comes with, you know, getting to our age and still being in the music business and still doing well and still being successful. And I can see that in the studio that you've built that I was talking to you about just before we started recording. So you tell me about the studio you built. Why did you do it? Um, and what does it mean to you? And how are people? Well, it's kind of at the moment, it's kind of selfish because I needed a place that I could go to that was away from the house. Uh, where I could, because I'm working on an album and I've been at it now almost a year. <laughs> so um, it's just, I needed to have a place where I could come and work. But also I wanted it to be a place where a lot of the young upcoming women musicians could come and have their rehearsals, you know, record vocals. It doesn't really have a massive booth that you can put a band in, but you can definitely do vocals, guitars, you know, horns. Um, and I just kind of wanted to create that space for like queer female artists to to come through and, and, and do their work um, mm. and feel kind of uninterrupted. And it's in the inner city, so it's close. Everybody can just take kind of one taxi and, and you're there. It's not, you know, mm. far away. Um, so at the moment it's kind of a lockout for me to finish my album and then as soon as as soon as I've done that everybody's kind of welcome to to come and use it and yeah I'm not really charging people too much for it at the moment because that wasn't really the intention of the space Um, but I think you know as time goes we might start charging people who knows but at the moment it's just for me and my friends to hang out drink rum smoke weed (laughs) drink a bit of champagne We talked about fashion. Yes. We talked about that. And we talked about you know, cuts with traditional fabrics. What was that name of that shop that you took me to? Uh, that had the I took incredible, you to a shop? Yeah, you took me to a shop in Johannesburg that had the most incredible cut stuff. Remember we talked one afternoon? There, I, 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 I have a lot of like uh, little secret spots in Joburg for if you're looking for traditional things. So I will tell you now. Um, so you can go to a place called Guamai Mai, which is mm-hmm. all the traditional Zulu stuff is at Guamai Mai in Johannesburg. Um, there's also, oh, I can't remember the name of the shop now. I think that's the shop I took you to. Yeah, you also took me, so it, was, it was a woman designer and she used traditional f- fabrics, but she had really amazing, like really contemporary cuts. That should be Palisama Kubong. Yeah. I've been, I've been wearing her clothes for quite a while. Yeah. yeah, really, yeah. really incredible stuff. So tell me about you're doing this new album and what can, how, what can you tell me about this new album that you're making and why haven't you asked me to be on it with you? I Please do it. Do it. I'm coming so over to South Africa. and I'm. Will you come over? I'll come, come over. I, I haven't been. Once not, I think it's been way, for a couple of years. It's Is way better. That, it's, if I come yeah. over, right? I think yeah, so. Come over. Yeah, I'm going to come over to um, place. Well, the album is, um, I'm, I'm using a lot of uh, traditional instruments as kind of like the, uh, what do you call it? Like the, the bass line, right. the kind of bottom. The... When you say tra- traditional South African instruments, which are? So um, traditional Kosa instruments to be more, clearer so there is a kind of um single bow instrument called uh there's also another one called umkhupe 
-hmm. And I'm also using the drum patterns that I usually use by traditional healers. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of taking this kind of uh, sonic language that is extremely traditional and uh, lacing it with a lot of different stuff. And actually, I was in New York in May and Michelle... Not just some, it. not just Michelle, someone. Michelle not just our friend Michelle. Yeah, no, my mate Michelle. So I, I have, I have Michelle Dengicello on the album, and I'm just kind of, yeah, working on a very groovy but also very kind of emotional album. I don't think I've made one like this before. Uh, it's, I, I think this is, this is the, the stuff is a lot more autobiographical than I've ever made, if you can mm. imagine, after like almost 30 years in the in the business, that I feel that this is the most autobiographical work I've I've written so far. That's interesting. Um and yeah, I actually I, I I was definitely going to call you to do to do some vocals because this album is also about bringing together a lot of my friends into the work and have mm. us do things together. So Get those, get those vocals going. Yeah, that one. <laughs> we'll warm up with that one. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because you also come and sing in New York as well. You do concerts all over the world, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we do concerts all over the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I'm hoping to do a lot more because. Um, yeah, I think it's it's also because I, I spend so much time in between albums. I don't mm. know if you guys do the same, but I mean, I have, yeah, like ten years, I have 10 years between albums. And that sometimes means that you have to kind of reintroduce yourself to people. Um, so you're like, you're so, like a South African Sade. <laughs> yes, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, well, I guess we'll wait 15 years for the next one. For the next Sade album, yeah. Yeah. But now I'm kind of becoming like the, the Rihanna, where I keep saying, this September, and then it's like, sorry, February. This September, <laughs> then you put a perfume out, then this August, yeah, and, then, and, and then your you know, underwear line out. Yeah. And then, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I thought, I actually thought I was going to ask you a lot more questions. You can ask me questions. I was going to ask you, how was it for you when you guys first came to South Africa and did that concert because do you remember because that's when I was I you know I kind of really came became in awe of you because South African audiences at the time were so insane that if they didn't understand something they would go crazy and you went on and I don't know if you went on after us or before us at the Mandela at concert you mean at the Nelson Mandela concert yes, yes. it was it was it was his 80th birthday. That's 80th birthday, and, yeah. And you guys went on, and the and the audience didn't understand the first track because no. it was all it was all black people who like thought that rock and roll was white <laughs> people music, and they started throwing things, and you went for it. By the yeah. third song, they were like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, like well, people... it was weird because people in South Africa, every you know, we'd already been to South Africa and, and done. But um, you were playing for mostly white audiences. Well, we were, right? we, we, it was many white audiences, and even though you know, because you know, the, the rock music even was invented by black people, but but it, it, in some ways it got segregated and stolen from. So now we get to yeah. this point in the nineties where people think that rock music is just a white people thing. It's white, um, yeah. And so when we went to South Africa uh, in 98, uh, I think 96, and then um, the Nelson Mandela concert was a few years later, you know, we were very successful in South Africa among the wider audiences, even yeah. though I remember... You had we... already had like this massive 
concerts yeah. in South Africa. Yeah. Like two and so, nights. But yeah, we had these massive concerts in South Africa. And, and, and the thing that I was very much aware, having hung out with you, because I remember I was with you and then we were back. I was backpacking, went to Namibia, I was on my own. And then I got back to London and our manager Lee said, oh, we're going on tour to South Africa in a few weeks. I was like, I've just been there. Great. And then when I went back there as a musician, I had this shock of like, everyone's like, I can't go there, can't do this, can't do that. Wow, but it's so dangerous. And I was like, I was just there. You were like, we were like, we were just there. We're literally just there and it's fine. And then they were trying to separate the, the band into two halves, the black half and the white half and tend to mark and they, oh, you go here with us to Rosebud Bush with us and then they can go wherever they're going with Tandiswa. With their black friends. And we were like, no, we're staying all together. You take us all or you take none of us. But I remember this sense of like, I, when we came back, because I'd already been in South Africa, I was like, okay, we're going to Soweto, we're doing all of the black press. And also yeah. we're going to get all of these kids from uh, Soweto and from other places to come and watch us set up and, you know, teach them a trade or yeah. inspire them to, you know, to, to come and, and be performers or production or backstage. So, and it was a fight because our record company did not want us to go and talk to black yeah. radio stations. And so we have more black people at a rock gig than I think in, in decades, but it was still mainly a white audience. And so then we come on the stage to Nelson Mandela and it's mainly black people. And I'm backstage thinking, this is not, this is going to be hard. <laughs> this is going to be <laughs> different. This, this is, is going to be different. Because we were the first kind of multicultural band to play South Africa post-apartheid. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody on that, I mean, it was, you know, it was Shaka Khan, and yes. Stevie Wonder, yeah. you know, exactly. And then, and then, and I remember Shaka Khan got us all drunk backstage because it was late, late, late. Everything was, and Shaka Khan just kind of. We were, we, you and I remember. were completely fangirling and crushing. We're fangirling, on a, a, we were a, just a like, Shaka oh Khan. my god, Shaka Khan, <laughs> Shaka, Shaka, Shaka. So we just followed around, followed her around, looking at each other, going, "Where were Shaka Khan?" And then she dragged us on stage to sing. Remember that? Remember that? And then, um, but it was really, I was, it was kind of like, you know, I was aware that we're a black fronted band, but this is, you know, what's perceived as white music. So I just went out there and fought for it. I was just like, I'm you. not gonna, you know, we had to go and fight for it. And then we, and after a couple of songs, they were like, oh, okay, this, we like this. Now we get it. it. Everybody was, we're, going, you know we're, 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 we're like, we're into it. I think they, what what people love the most is that you had that tenacity, that fighting spirit that was just like, you're going to hear this and you're going to get this, you know? So, mm. yeah, that was amazing for me to see you do that. That, you know, I was like, okay, that's my girl. That's my girl. <laughs> that's my girl. Listen, when you're in a black, when you, when you're on a black fronted band and you play, you know, what's perceived as white music all over the world, we had that. So I was used to that fight. I was, I, yeah. I thought it's going to take them three songs, but we're not leaving the stage. Yeah. So, yeah. It was incredible. It was, it was an experience. <laughs> incredible, incredible. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I was very proud of you that day, and I. That's when I realized that you know nothing is ever gonna stop you. We were kids back then. You know what I mean? We were babies. So yeah. We were still. We were still wondering what else is coming. You know, and yeah. and like so much came. So yeah. 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 And now and now we're mothers. Now we're mothers. And now we're mothers. Now we're mothers. Saying, Come and People come up to me and say, oh, my mum really likes your music. I'm like, thanks. Oh, oh. <laughs> do you know what? Um, we have thanks, this thing, I you feel know. so old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a word, there's a word called CC in my language, which is yeah. kind of like someone that's a, a lot younger than 
mother. Because when you're older, people call you mama all the time. They'll just be like, hi, ah. so, hello, mama. And you're like, no. So now, <laughs> you know, these friends friends of mine were like, you know, we should just tell these people our pronouns are Sisi. Never say mama. <laughs> Never say mama. Just Sisi. Never say mama. It's Sisi. You know? It's Sisi. So. It will always be Sisi. And for um, me, I'm like, listen, it's King Ta for a reason. Just say King. Just bow and let's keep it moving. <laughs> Don't, don't just bow and keep mama. it moving. I love it. Don't call bow me mama. No. Yeah, no legends, no icons here. We just Yeah, no legends, no I will please. No, 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 no. We're no, very no bad ups, children. Just doing our thing. <laughs> you know, did you watch that? Did you watch that movie called The Life of Brian? Of did I watch am I English or am I do I not have English credentials? Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. Did I ever so, did I watch the so life of Brian? I was gonna say, I was gonna say, what are legends? We're very naughty kids. <laughs> he's not the messiah he's, he's not the messiah boy. he's just a very naughty boy that's us well listen i'm gonna let you go because um you just you just crack me up i'm coming to south africa to play on your record i know you invited myself but i don't care you know we know i'm inviting you officially officially you're officially inviting me okay i'm yes. coming for a week okay cool i love it um thank you so much for um, putting yourself under the scrutiny of my questions. It's been thank lovely you. talking to you. And thanks for cracking me up as usual. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Skin. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Wonderful. And um, yeah, I will see you soon. See you soon. See you soon.